1: sequence start space nuts 5 space nuts astronauts report it feels good hello and thank you for joining us on the podcast we call space nuts it's great to have you along for yet another episode and joining me as always is uh, astronomer fred watson hello fred Hello, Andrew. How are you doing? How I'm are you good. Doing? I'm very well. And uh, hello to Mandu. I know he's lurking nearby. I heard him earlier. <laughs> yeah,
2: he's just gone back to sleep. Oh, is he? <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah. I think he, yeah. Uh, <laughs> and for those who are new to the podcast and don't know what we're talking about, we're talking about Fred's cat, Mandu. Get it? Yeah. Uh, now today. <laughs> Uh, Today we are talking about the first direct evidence that's um, showing there is water ice on the moon. It's like black holes. We know they exist, but we've never seen one, and that's been the case for water ice on the moon, apparently. So uh, now we think we've spotted some. Uh, There's also a new home for Iron Man, it appears. Uh, That is (laughs) the planet Kelt 9b, which has a very unusual atmosphere. And we're going to try and tackle two, well, three questions from two listeners today, Uh, one about the expansion of the universe and a follow-up to our discussion about black holes, which I think was a follow-up to a discussion about black holes, (laughs) if I remember rightly, but we'll get to those a little later. But Fred, uh, the, um, the first direct evidence of water ice on the moon, I suppose we should start by talking about the fact that other forms of ice exist in the universe, and we've certainly found evidence of that that's right yes uh, uh, ice
2: you know i mean we tend to use the word ice ice for a Anything that's liquid at the kind of temperatures that we we deal with, mm. um, and is uh, but is is not liquid at uh, at the temperatures that we often find. And I guess the common, commonest is dry ice, uh, which of course is solid carbon dioxide, and that's found around the poles of Mars. Um, but what we're talking about now is definitely water ice, uh, good old H2O, but at a temperature below zero. Uh, this, this story goes back actually to the early 1960s believe it or not, when people speculated that because by then we knew that some of the craters uh, on the moon uh, near its north and south poles, uh, because they never, ever see sunlight. And so uh, in the bottom of the craters, and so um, the speculation was that we might find all kinds of interesting things there, and one of them was that water ice might, uh, you know, might be exist might exist in these uh, permanently shaded areas. Um, so, uh, the, moving on a few decades, um, there have been detections of. A kind of smoking gun for ice, if I can mix all the metaphors, uh, by um, spacecraft like NASA's Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter and the Indian um, orbiter Chandrayaan-1, which did an amazing job at detecting hydrogen uh, above the north and south poles of the moon. So both of those spacecraft have picked up hydrogen uh, in the, you know, in the sort of that I, I was going to call it a rarefied atmosphere but even that's gracing it with too strong a term uh it's it's just a few uh, atoms that basically leak leak up from the surface of the moon but hydrogen is amongst them and hydrogen is what you expect if you have a body of either water or frozen water uh, in other words ice yeah. so the interpretation has always been that that um, was a as i said a smoking gun for ice but there are other um you know other um, possibilities there and there is a scientist um, dr Schwa Schwa lee who's at the university of hawaii um he has made the comment that yes it could be just hydrogen that's coming up from the moon it could be hydroxyl which is um a, another molecule that you that has a, a oxygen and hydrogen in it or it could be water or it could be anything else with hydrogen uh, what he says is the early data could not distinguish which is which um and so uh what he has done he and his team of uh, colleagues in the university of hawaii and elsewhere they've uh, used a an, an analysis of data from an instrument called the Moon Mineralogy Mapper, which was also on the Chandrayaan One spacecraft, and and it essentially looks at the um, the spectra. You know, it me- it measures the rainbow spectrum of the surface that it's flying over, mm-hmm. but it does that in the infrared. That's the redder than red uh, region of the spectrum, invisible to our eyes, and so they've done a very careful analysis of the data that you get when you fly over the North and South Poles of the Moon. And sure enough, they have uh, identified the signature, the fingerprint, if I can once again mix metaphors, the fingerprint of water ice. So this is definitely water ice. It's got a characteristic spectral signature which they've detected um, in many, many spots uh, above both the North and the South Pole of uh, of um, uh, of the moon, uh, it turns out actually that there's more of it down in the south. There are there are lot lar- you know, larger areas of water ice uh, in the southern polar region, and that's probably because the craters
1: are deeper there. So you've I, got. I thought it was because that was the bottom of the moon, and that's just naturally where water would drain. <laughs> <laughs> you yes, know, I, someone would believe that if you <laughs> yeah. really tried to convince them. Yeah,
2: no look, it's only the bottom of the moon seen from our <laughs> uh, you know northern uh, centric uh, view of the universe. <laughs> mm. uh, if you're standing there, it's the top of the moon, I can tell you. Um, so yes, it's it's like um, you know it's just it's just spots of, of water ice, uh, but there are more of them. In the, uh, in, the su- in the south and in the north.
1: Now this is a, a pretty important discovery because water ice means potential for um, well, maybe habitation, but it also means that uh, making fuel becomes a real thing.
2: Exactly, that's
1: right. And they are talking about going back to the moon. And there was an even uh, an article this week that argued that we should be focusing more on the moon now than than Mars. Um, and and raising all sorts of reasons why, which I won't go into. But, um, yeah, there's there's definitely plans to go back to the moon. Um, China's definitely keen to get there.
2: Yeah, actually, it, indeed. And, um, you know, other countries as well. The the, uh, the Indians have got their sights on the moon as well, and they've done such a fantastic job with Chandrayaan-1. It's It's been a very successful project. Mm. And I think it's now defunct. I can't actually remember. I think that spacecraft no longer exists. Uh, but, yeah, so... Um, it, it, uh, what you've said is absolutely right. If you can find stores of water on, a, on an alien world, then it, it, it absolves you from um, having to really worry too much about finding fuel because if you can put solar panels there and dissociate the, uh, the water into hydrogen and oxygen, what you've got is rocket fuel.
1: Yeah, which is very handy stuff when you want to get uh, off something stuff. and get back to Earth. Yeah. Um, the other interesting thing is uh, it's pretty inhospitable um, terrain, that, that uh, part of uh, the Moon. It's, um, it's I, I believe, if not the coldest, place in the solar system very close to being the very the coldest place it is it's very
2: very cold that's right Uh, the figure I've got is minus 238 degrees
1: celsius I think and for you Americans that's minus several million degrees
2: (laughs) it's very cold I think actually I I have a feeling Pluto is minus 239 I can't remember Yeah. Uh, it's very cold out there uh, in the dis- dim and distant bits of the solar system.
1: Mm. So what happens now that they've confirmed beyond reasonable doubt that there's water ice on the moon, everyone just goes, you ripper, planks uh, their think... glasses together and gets on with it.
2: And gets on with it. Yeah, look, it's it's just additional knowledge. I mean, one of the interesting things that we see from mm. this, though, is that um, uh, this uh, this is quite, it's rather different from ice deposits that we know are elsewhere at the northern and southern poles and they are on the planet mercury and that's even more weird because mercury is so close to the yes. sun but it does have ice deposits near its northern and southern pole uh, poles and Ceres, the dwarf planet Ceres, which is out there in the asteroid belt Um, a a very interesting world for all kinds of reasons Uh, still I think um, being orbited by the Dawn spacecraft a NASA spacecraft Um, but they they have um, kind of much larger areas of ice rather than just these spots of ice that Mm. have been found on the moon and that um, you know that raises questions itself. So there will be more research done on this to find out why the ice is is patchy rather than, you know, these contiguous areas.
1: Probably just mixed up with the the soil or something like that's that.
2: That's a possibility, yeah. yeah. That's
1: a- it also opens the door to the probability that water ice is more abundant in the universe than we probably have ever considered.
2: I think that's a lesson that we've already learned um uh, Andrew because um you know we we see it everywhere uh compared with even only 10 years ago uh if somebody had said well you know that these are moons of jupiter and saturn uh, uh, a lot of it is is ice um and then there's a lot of water there as well in fact there's more water on titan and i think um uh, europa it might be one of the moons of jupiter uh more liquid water than there is in all the oceans of the earth mm. uh, so it, it, we're realizing just how abundant it is it's not really a surprise because the radio astronomers have been telling us for years for decades that the most common two-element molecule in the universe is water. Um, so, and it, you know, because you, you can pick it up as a vapour by telescopes just in, in interstellar space, in nebulae and things like that. Mm. Water is everywhere.
1: It's yes, and, very, and it sort of brings back into play that four-letter word we occasionally bring up, which is uh, Life. And- Um, the the l word where there is liquid water there may well be life so there may
2: well be but that's that's a lesson that we have yet to to confirm yes indeed but um, the good news
1: is we have confirmed beyond doubt that there is water ice on the moon so close to us so uh, that that's uh, a big leap forward in our knowledge and uh, very handy to know Um, And uh, the launch of TAP-1, the next big mission to the moon, is not far away. (laughs) You're, You're listening to Space Nuts with Andrew Dunkley and Fred Watson. Now, let's take a little break and find out more about our sponsor. ExpressVPN rated number one by TechRadar. Uh, this is the one I use. I've been using it for a couple of years, and I love it. When I joined ExpressVPN, they were brand new, uh, new to the market. But uh, I read a lot of reviews and did a lot of comparisons, and there was just something about their their business model that I Particularly liked, and a couple of years down the track, honestly can't complain. Their interface is very easy to use. Their their service is second to none. Uh, I've had to contact them a couple of times about um, certain things that I wanted to do, and they were brilliant. So you may be wondering why I do need a VPN at all. It's all about privacy. Uh, do you really want big tech companies, governments, and others knowing? Uh, what's going on with your online activity. Even if you're having nothing to hide, it just feels downright creepy. Uh, I think you'll agree. And governments are getting more and more interested in what you're doing every day. And so, yeah, protecting your privacy is what VPN is all about. And how often do you uh, run across websites that you want to get information from only to find that they're geo-blocked? Back to the show. Roger, you're
0: here, also. Space nuts.
1: Now, Fred, from the moon that we know and love, uh, to a place that we don't know and probably wouldn't love if we had to move there. It's Kelt 9b, uh, one of the strangest planets that has uh, yet been discovered. Uh, it's a, an exoplanet, of course. Uh, what's fascinating about this is they've just announced that it's got a very strange metallic atmosphere.
2: That's correct. Um, a very strange world, and, and the strangeness comes because its temperature, its surface temperature, is more what we would associate with a star than a planet. 3,780 Celsius, Gee. whatever that is in Fahrenheit. I, it's very, very
1: hot. <laughs> I, I could find out for you, if you like.
2: Yeah, I could too. But no, Hang
1: on, give me a sec. Hey, Siri... <laughs> What's 3,780 degrees Celsius in Fahrenheit? And the answer is 6,836. Show off.
2: <laughs> Just
1: because you've got Siri
2: on your wrist. Very handy. <laughs> I switch Siri off every time she shows up.
1: <laughs> I, I find it very handy on radio when I need to make a quick calculation about something. Because yeah, right. a lot of stories but- turn up in miles an hour or, or yes. you know, feet and yards, and I have to convert it for a, an Australian audience. So... Very, very handy indeed. So, anyway, it's a hot place. <laughs> All
2: right. From one total digression to another, um, you, you know, you and I are used to talking about planet exoplanets with names like Kepler 128 and Kepler 936 and yeah. things like that. But this is CELT, and I, I bet you don't know what Kelt stands for. Um,
1: <laughs> well, it... No. There, yeah. Where's your Siri now? <laughs> if I asked, I'd probably get some um, yeah, explanation you... or definition of seaweed.
2: Something you'd rather not have. That's right. Yes, you probably would. It's an acronym for the Kilo Degree Extremely Little Telescope. <laughs> uh, that's what it stands for. And. Um, the kilodegree means it looks at thousands of degrees, that's to say it's got a very wide angle of view and mm. that you would associate with an extremely little telescope because uh, the smaller it is often the, the bigger the angle of view but it's doing the same sort of job as um, as Kepler, it's looking for eclipses uh, of, of of stars by their planets in other words, or not so much eclipses where things disappear altogether transits. but where when a planet uh, transits in front of its parent star and the light of the star drops, so Kelt has found a very large number of these things, and it's got a lovely name. I like the extremely little telescope. I bit. do
1: too, that's cute. Yeah,
2: yeah. Um, so KELT 9B, okay. So the data that we're talking about now don't come from KELT itself, they come from um, a, a, actually a, an instrument um, on a very large telescope in the Canary Islands, uh, the TNG Telescopio Nazionale Galileo. Um, and that has a, an instrument called HARPS NORTH. HARPS is a, I forgot what the acronym stands for, but it's um, once again, it's a, a, a method of measuring the, the spectra, the, um, uh, the uh, uh, rainbow colors in the light of a star. And if, the, if a planet with an atmosphere passes in front of the star, you can actually see what the atmosphere does to the light in terms of its spectrum. And HARPS is an instrument that analyzes that very successfully. It's, um, HARPS it's, stands uh,
1: for, has anyone really programmed Siri? <laughs>
2: <laughs> right. Thanks. Thanks, Siri. And thanks, Andrew. No um, worries. Right.
1: <laughs> Always useful.
2: Yeah, um, I'm embarrassed. I can't remember what it stands for. It's a vacuum spectrograph, and it's for planetary searches. But it doesn't matter. That's fine. I think I think the HA might be high accuracy. <laughs> there you now, go. Where
1: were we? So um, this this planet is super hot with a strange atmosphere
2: and it's and it's been observed in La Palma in the Canary Islands uh, where I used to work there you are there's another throwing for you uh, yeah so okay what what have we discovered first of all this thing is not nearby re- relatively speaking it's quite a long way away 620 light years from the earth it's in the northern hemisphere constellation of Cygnus um, and it's classified as what you call a hot Jupiter which is a gas giant but very close to its parent star But this one is much bigger than Jupiter, three times the size, uh, and so close to its parent star, it's got this 3,780 degrees Celsius temperature, hottest exoplanet ever found.
1: Wow. It it, it sounds like it's so close to being a star. Could it be like a failed binary star system, perhaps?
2: Yes, it almost makes you wonder. I mean,
1: if it's three
2: times the size of Jupiter... um, that means its mass uh, must be um, considerably more if that's if it's diameter we're talking about and once you get to above 13 jupiter masses andrew as i'm sure you'll remember uh, what you've got is a black is a brown dwarf not a black hole. a brown dwarf star is defined as being an object with 13 more than 13 times the mass of jupiter so i suspect this is below that level but it's still stellar-like in its, in its temperature. And um, because of the hot, uh, you know, the heat of that temperature, it means that the elements or the substances that have been detected in the atmosphere are not molecules. Molecules uh, which are atoms paired together, like the water molecule we were just talking about a few minutes ago. Um, molecules don't like high temperatures. They break up uh, into their component atoms. And so, what we find here is atoms is elements rather than rather than molecules, and the elements that have been uh, attracting the headlines are first of all iron, as you mentioned it 's got iron in its atmosphere, and titanium, another kind of more exotic uh, uh, metal, which we actually find quite commonly in the atmospheres of cool stars but it's bound up then with oxygen. It becomes an oxide of titanium uh, in in these atmospheres. So I think this is one of the first times that titanium, um, you know, atomic titanium has has been detected uh, in certainly in the, atmosphere of an exoplanet but actually uh, at all in space i think it's a bit of a rarity mm. so very interesting stuff and I, it's pretty hard to imagine what it might be like standing on the surface of a of a, a planet with um, oh, if it and has a titanium surface, with a titanium atmosphere that's yeah. right
1: well, um, Paul McCartney wrote a very famous song about uh, Magneto and Titanium Man, and maybe uh, if Iron Man and those other two got together, it'd be perfect for them. <laughs> They'd live happily ever after.
2: Uh, one would hope so. Uh, they, they certainly would never be cold.
1: No, definitely not. As discovered <laughs> by, you ready for this? The High Accuracy Radial Velocity Planet Searcher.
2: There you go. That's so what I was right, stands for. I was right with the high accuracy. You were. You were. You got velocity, I should have right. a velocity planets. Yes, so.
1: but, um, yeah, um, that planet, uh, KELT-9b, one of the weirdest ever discovered. But I am sure, Fred, there are weirder places out there yet to be found.
2: Oh, I think that's right. I think One of them right. could
1: be Earth. <laughs> <laughs>
2: well, it, you know, to some uh, outside observers, if there are any, the Earth will be very strange because I think, you know, we've, we've kind of concluded to some extent, that higher order life forms of the kind that we find on Earth might be very rare in the universe. Indeed.
1: All right, we'll watch with interest. Uh, you're listening to Space Nuts, Andrew Dunkley and Fred Watson here.
0: Zero G and I feel fine. Space Nuts.
1: Finally, Fred, as we like to do, we'll finish off with a question. In fact, we've got, I think, three questions from two sources. We'll start with Dan Hind. Hello, Dan. Thanks for your question. Hi, Fred and Andrew. I'm a long-time lurker. First time question Is the universe expanding at a uniform speed? And if so, how do we know? Also, following on from the black hole question this week, if black holes are considered a point of infinite density, why do they vary in size? Shouldn't they all be the same? I suspect I've got more than three questions for you today, Fred. It might be about seven. <laughs> But yes, um, well, is the universe also. expanding at a uniform speed was the first part of let's, Dan's let's question. Let's deal with that, yeah. Um, and the
2: answer is no. Uh, so uh, since the 1970s, we've had the wherewithal to kind of chart the expansion speed of the universe um, t- to some extent through, through its history. Uh, we used to think that the universe's expansion was probably slowing down. Uh, and that would be because the expansion itself comes from the Big Bang, but the universe is full of matter, which has gravity and tends to slow it down to, 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 to break the acceleration or break the expansion. But since 1998, we've known that that's not the case, uh, that the universe is now expanding more rapidly uh, than it used to. And in fact, the acceleration seems to have kicked in about six or seven billion years ago. So remember the universe is 13.8 billion years old. So about halfway through the universe's current lifetime, um, it seems to have started accelerating more rapidly. Uh, Now um, that may be, that doesn't really tell us whether that Expansion is something new that's kicked in or or something that's always been there. And we think it's called dark energy uh, that's always been there. But in the early universe, the gravity of the uh, of the things in the universe actually um, was strong enough to stop the acceleration showing up. I don't know whether you're following all that. It's a fairly esoteric argument, but um, yeah, so we think that since since, uh, about six or seven billion years ago, the universe has started to accelerate in its expansion. How do we know this? Because we have standard candles and the standard candles are uh, things called type 1a supernovae. They're exploding stars that always seem to reach the same level of brightness when they go off and that makes them very useful because they act as what we in the trade call a standard candle in other words a standard light intensity Mm. and so what we can do is measure where these things um, sort of should be if the universe is expanding uniformly um, but then see where they are because of, we know how bright they intrinsically are and it's that comparison uh, along with some more, rather more esoteric considerations but that comparison leads you to, uh, to the deduction that yes the universe is expanding more rapidly.
1: Okay that's the first two <laughs> Yes um, you'll, So you'll um, also uh, a follow up on the black hole question yeah, so if Black holes the, are considered a point of infinite de- de- uh, density, like my brain. Uh, why do they vary in size? Shouldn't they all and, be the same?
2: Yeah, and it, it, look, it's a great question. And, and it just tells you that black holes really don't behave in the way we intuitively expect. Um, because um, even though, yes, a black hole is a point of infinite density, uh, they do vary in mass. And by mass here we mean their sort of gravitational influence. Um, I, I, I guess you'd call it uh, their gravitational mass rather than their inertial mass. There's, there's subtleties here that we don't really need to go into, but the bottom line is that the more stuff you pile into this singularity, even though its density is infinite, the more massive its effect is on the space surrounding it. That's probably the best way to, to look at it, is what's it, what is its effect on its surroundings, yeah. um, and the, the the more massive, the, the more stuff you pile in, the more massive it becomes, which is why we sometimes get these billion solar mass uh, black holes at the centres of galaxies. Quite extraordinary stuff.
1: And up until recently, we couldn't figure out why they were only coming in two sizes, small and massive, and then I think two weeks after you and I discussed that, they found a medium sized one.
2: They did, yeah. The medium sized ones are still pretty rare, though. Or, mm. or to, to give it the technical term, Andrew, an intermediate mass black hole.
1: Right. <laughs> sounds better than middle sized. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. Uh, so hopefully that covers your questions, Dan. Uh, we'll move on to John's question because it actually dovetails with Dan's. It does. Um, very nice. John Milton, and thank you for uh, your question, John questions. Uh, I've been listening to your uh, August 16 podcast, oh that makes three of us, where you discussed singularities. I have two questions. Uh, one, since time slows as you approach a singularity, has any matter that's fallen beyond the event horizon actually reached the singularity yet? Do you want me to read the rest or do you want to tackle that first? No, let's
2: do that one first because <clears throat> that's um, I think relatively straightforward. So Time slows down, <clears throat> but um, that is as you as you are viewed from an outside observer. So what it means is that an outside observer would see you or not because you're inside the event horizon. But um, it, to an outside observatory, an outside observer, your time is slowing down. And so an outside observer sees your fall gradually slowing. In fact, I think time stops for you on the event horizon. So for, to an outside observer, I can't say the word, an outside observer, you are. You see all these poor people splattered on the outside of the event horizon. But the person it's themselves have actually passed through the event horizon without noticing any change in time. Mm. They just whiz towards the black hole because they themselves perceive time at their normal rate but actually
1: the it slowed down for them. Does that make sense? I know it's difficult stuff. It, it, it doesn't make any sense whatsoever but your explanation did. Um, <laughs> I think they portray this concept really really well in the science fiction movie Interstellar Yeah. where they yeah. go down onto the surface of, of a planet which is very close to um, a black hole but the spaceship they travel to the area on is further away and so when they travel down to the black uh, down to the planet's surface time for them is as it feels yes. regardless of where they are yep. but for every hour they're down there seven years passes on the spaceship
2: that's correct yes that's it's right
1: a, it sort of gives you a rudimentary understanding of the um, the effect of a black hole.
2: Yeah. Whereas if you were on the spaceship, you'd see time, pers- you know, going normally as well, even though yeah. it's the difference between them. Exactly as you've said, it's mm-hmm. the it's the difference between these two reference frames, exactly. as we call it in the train.
1: So... Um... <laughs> That's part one of, uh, of John's question. Second part is, if matter beyond the event horizon retains angular momentum, presumably, uh, presumably it orbits the singularity faster as the distance decreases. But wouldn't this fall be halted when its orbit velocity reached light speed? Uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well
2: no that's that's another great question that these are these are really perceptive questions about um you know the way black holes work and black holes are a puzzle for all of us mm. but the the answer is um okay so nothing can uh, travel faster than the speed of light even inside a black hole event horizon. So what happens as it tries to accelerate to, con- to conserve angular momentum is uh, basically it gets more massive uh and that because that's what happens in special relativity when things get nearer the speed of light uh you they get more massive so the the fact that you you can't even you can't go any faster uh, but you can get more massive is how the angular momentum is conserved um, and, and basically the the whole thing just gets turned into energy uh, which is what what happens anyway uh in the black hole so that the, the the momentum. Uh, turns into, um, you know, effectively kinetic energy, uh, which is uh, kind of how it, even from within the, the the event horizon, there will be there will be radiation floating around in there. There must be a very high energy field, and in some ways that relates back to the question about the differing masses of black holes, um, and of course energy and mass. Are related directly by E equals MC squared, so that uh, perhaps is another in, uh, another way of looking at the the varying masses of black holes. It's how much energy is locked up in them.
1: Okay, so that's the answer.
2: <laughs> you because don't look. I don't big.
1: feel any wiser.
2: <laughs> no. I mean, it's confusing. You think stuff. you
1: would? <laughs> uh, well, um, John probably understood what you were saying. That's all I'll say to it. (laughs) But they they are just such a... um, uh, And the fact that we have not yet seen one makes it even more complicated because we know they're there. Everything proves that they exist. We know a lot about them, but we haven't ever seen one. So we're still working on that. Um, That's right, the the Event Horizon
2: Telescope. Hopefully we might get some results back from that before too long so we can actually see a black hole.
1: Yeah, that will be good. And the other thing that sort of confuses me, Fred, is you keep telling us that the uh, universe is 13.8 billion years old. I mean, we've been doing this podcast for a long time. Wouldn't it be 13.9 billion years old now? <laughs>
2: Maybe so, yeah.
1: <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. Uh, it's, uh, it's, it's a really figure, how- isn't it?
2: How old we make our listeners feel? <laughs>
1: <laughs> Indeed. All right. Uh, thanks for your questions, gentlemen, and we do appreciate the uh, the input, uh, even if I don't understand some of it some of the time. I think that's fair. Um, And then keep them coming in. Uh, Look, we're getting so many now, it's become almost impossible to cover them all. In fact, it has. Uh, We do try to answer some of them directly on Facebook that have been covered in previous episodes. But if it's something new and refreshing and confuses me, Fred always loves to do them. So uh, keep them coming via our Facebook page or whatever platform that you have access to communications uh, to us from. I think that made sense too. Uh, and thank you as always, Fred. It's been a pleasure.
2: It's been a pleasure um, talking to you too, Andrew, until he started putting prepositions at the end of your sentences, which, of course, we were taught never to do.
1: Yeah, I ignored that <laughs> From. lesson. Actually, I think I was sick that day. Pretty sure I was too. Um, anyway, we'll catch you next time. Yeah, to catch you next
2: time, Andrew. Good to talk. Thanks again.
1: Fred Watson, uh, astronomer, joins us every week here on Space Nuts, as you do too, and we appreciate it. We'll talk to you next time.
0: Space Nuts. You'll be listening to the Space Nuts podcast. Mm-hmm. Subscribe to the full podcast on iTunes, Audio Boom, and Stitcher, or your favorite podcast distributor.
2: This has been another quality podcast production
0: from Sites.com.